This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Hi, y'all, and welcome to Horsin' Around. Saddle up and get ready to have a darn tootin', gallopin' good time as we trot out the show that's your ultimate horse source, of course. Find out how to use good old horse sense when it comes to breeding, feeding, training, and explaining. From practical tips on caring for your horse's health to advice on how to buy horse supplies, including bridles, halters, saddles, and more. So get ready to start horsing around with your host, horse expert and award-winning rider, Audrey Pavia. Howdy, Audrey. Welcome to Horsing Around on PetLifeRadio.com. Thanks for joining us. This week, we're going to talk to a young woman who made an amazing journey on horseback, traveling 6,000 miles across two continents with only two horses for companions. That woman is Marianne Dutois. Originally from South Africa, Marianne was living in Ireland when she decided to challenge herself by learning to ride and then embarking on this incredible adventure. We're going to talk to Marianne and find out what it was like for a novice female rider to travel from Argentina to New York alone. We'll be right back with Marianne right after these messages. Why the long face? I reckon horsing around will be back in the saddle right after we round up a few words from our sponsors. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com We know you're chomping at the bit to hear more horsing around. Well, we're back on the trail. So park yourself over yonder and set a spell. You ain't heard nothing yet. Welcome back to Horsing Around. I'm your host, Audrey Pavia, and we are here with Marianne Dutois, author of the book Crying with Cockroaches, which details the story of her cross-continental trek on horseback. Marianne, welcome to the show. Thanks, Audrey. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you here. Um, First off, tell me about your journey. What countries did you travel through? Well, I decided actually that I wanted to explore Latin America, and that was going to involve ultimately North America as well. Um, I started in Argentina, and I went through Bolivia after that, and then Brazil, and the big part of it was uh, like through the Amazon, and part of that was on a boat through the Amazon, and then Venezuela. Uh, I made actually the decision from the very beginning that I wasn't going to travel through Colombia, given the situation there, and um, that it's just not really very sure, and I think my mom just would have been far too worried if I told her I was going to attempt even to go through Colombia. 
So um, I ended up flying the horses. I was looking for a boat and we couldn't find a boat. So from the top of Venezuela, Caracas, which is the capital, um, we ended up being flown by one of my sponsors. I was just very lucky. I didn't realize that they actually fly horses. They were a courier company like FedEx, uh, like what you have in uh, in the United States. And DHL was actually my, my, my sponsors. And they ended up flying us to Costa Rica. So... From Costa Rica, we went through um, Nicaragua, through a small part of Honduras, just the kind of the southern part, El Salvador, Guatemala. Sadly, I couldn't get through Mexico, and uh, I do write about that in the book, and there was just an awful lot of red tape and bureaucracy and everything else. So um, I was adamant that I didn't want to finish, and that I still wanted to do a part through the United States. So I ended up going then from Georgia up the way um, South Carolina, North Carolina, all the way up to New York City. And that's where I actually finished the trip then 21 months later. And what prompted you to make this journey? Well, Audrey, I don't know. It's hard to say what exactly it was. I think, well, I know I've I've always been somebody that really liked to do adventurous things. I was always somebody that, you know, if you dare me to do something and... um, I did a cycling trip through Europe in 92, not knowing anybody and just basically going from town to town and pitching my tent in people's gardens and, and asking for help. So I always knew that I wanted to do something adventurous. Um, again, I just I kind of always admired women who do these great things and charity trips and going to exotic places. And, and I always thought, well, you know, if they can do it, why can't I? And um, I was at a time in my life where I didn't have a husband, I had no mortgage, I I really had very few commitments, and I just thought, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it, and uh, my only belongings were probably a piano and a camera that I had, so it it was kind of easy just to, to pack up and go. I was really amazed when I was reading your book to find out that you had very little horse experience when you decided to do this. Um, Tell me what your horse experience was prior to the journey. Well, it was really little, and I'm not exaggerating it in the book, because when I told my dad that I was going to do it, and he just, he had this look of, in the cruelty on his face, and he just said, you know, but you can't ride a horse. And and he was absolutely right. My my he was a very good horse rider. My youngest brother was a very good horse rider. I've always loved horses, but I wasn't a great rider. I was really I always had this kind of fear for horses. I've always loved them, but I just was never really comfortable around horses and I remember when I was young and you know, you'd actually get on a horse and, you know, your brothers go so you kind of want to show that you know you you know something about horses too and you're not that afraid and the moment the horse starts to run or gallop I would just jump off so I was never really comfortable with horses but I just knew that this trip I wanted it to be on horseback I, I didn't think initially that it was going to involve two horses I just really from the start when I thought I wanted to do this adventure I didn't think it was going to take 21 months I thought maybe one horse three months somewhere in some exotic location and doing whatever kilometers a day and, you know, chilling out and seeing new places and new faces and everything. But it just ended up kind of taking a life of its own. And it was really after having read Chifley's book, the guy who, in 1925, he was a Swiss explorer. He went with uh, his two horses from Argentina to New York. And 
I read the book and I just thought that's it. That's what I want to do as well. And so it, it really just, everything changed after I realized, but it was just going to be on such a bigger scale than, than what I initially envisaged. I imagine that once you got into it and you started uh, being around horses and seeing what it's like, dealing with horses, especially under those circumstances, you probably realized you had no idea what you were getting into. <laughs> well, that is very true. I mean, and you're probably from having read the book, I mean, the disasters that I had um, with saddle packs and things. And, you know, you have to, to get used to the horses and you have to know what they spoke for and what makes them afraid. And there was just so much involved. I mean, I wasn't afraid in the sense that if I didn't know something, and believe me, I knew very little, I had no problem asking people for, for advice. And you could see even when I was in Argentina, you know, some people rolling their eyes thinking, oh my gosh, you don't even know that. They wouldn't say that, You're but right. you know, you could see it on their faces. And uh, some came right. very close to actually saying it. And, you know, one or two did actually say what what are you doing? But at the same time, <laughs> I knew that it, it couldn't be that difficult. I knew that I would, I would ask if, if I was unsure. And that I kind of explain it in the book as well. I really thought as well that I had an intuitive thing with the horses. I think I've had it always with animals. And their well-being was really my top priority. And yes, it was an arduous journey for them as it was for me. And there were days when we were cold and there were days when we were hungry and there were days when we were really, really tired. But ultimately, every single day, their well-being was my concern. I didn't mind if I went hungry or if I had to go cold, but I just wanted to make sure after a day's ride that at least they had a safe place, they had a place like if they wanted to lie down that they could and they had food to eat. And it's amazing, actually, when you're thrown in at the deep end, how quickly those skills and things that I thought I didn't have a clue, but so much of it just comes to you. And it's kind of, it comes to you out of necessity. It's almost like a survival thing. And, you know, I had the best intentions on this journey in, in, on so many levels. And just to have experienced that bond with the horses on, on a day-to-day -day basis and getting more um, accustomed to riding a horse, having another horse on tow, which is the pack horse, but then your relationship and, and how they trust you and you can lead them into places where they wouldn't go with anyone else, but they go with you because you've spent all these months with them. And that for me was just always so heartwarming to know that they have this incredible trust in me. And I know that is one of the most amazing things about being with horses is, is when they learn to trust you. It's just it's almost a spiritual experience. Absolutely. And tell me, where did you get the horses you used on the trip? Okay, yeah, they were a specific breed. When I read Chifley's book, um, he mentioned this breed that he used, and they're called Criollos, and you spell it C-R-I-O-L-L-O. -L -L -O, and they are horses from the, from the Patagonian Pampas. Um, they're not big horses. They're a little bit bigger than ponies, really, but they're incredibly sturdy. They've got great, great endurance. They have really accommodating guts, and, uh, you know, you, they can have almost something different to eat any other day. But they're also really, really sweet personalities as well, and they're just really placid kind of horses. So I knew from the very, very beginning that I was going to use Criollos. And um, 
for the majority of my journey, I had Criollas, and actually Misha, who was one of the original horses that started with me in Argentina, she finished the journey with me, and she trotted with me as we as we went through um, Central Park, and she's back in Ireland now. So um, they're just really incredible horses. She's the only mare that I actually use on the journey, and um, I'm really keen for her to have a foal, and of course I would love for it to be with uh, with another Criollo, which there are none of in Ireland, so that might prove to be a little bit of a headache, but um, they're just really, really wonderful horses, very, very special um, kind of uh, personalities. You had several mounts on the journey. Can you tell us about them? Yes, I had um, Tosa was the first horse that started with Misha, and um, sadly she or he was um, diagnosed with equine infectious anemia in Brazil. And the law in Brazil is that the horse needs to be put down. You can't even keep the horse in isolation, which is not really a life for a horse anyway. But um, yeah, you're forced to have the horse put down and. Um, which was probably, not probably, it was actually the, the really the hardest part of my journey and really the only time that I thought, is, is this really worth it? Because you just feel such responsibility and guilt because I just felt I brought him there and, um, you know, Misha was clear and she wasn't sick and, and he got the disease and was most probably from the horse flies as we went through the tropical parts in, uh, in Bolivia. So I found a replacement horse. They told me he had Criollo blood in him. I doubted it. It was in the middle of the Amazon, and there really wasn't much choice when it came to horses. But um, I chose him, Tufane, I called him. And uh, I, I really chose him because he was very nervous, and I had a suspicion that he hasn't been treated very well with whoever had him prior to me buying him. So um, I, I always kind of have this tendency to go for the underdog. So I just thought, no, I'd love to have Tufane. And he proved to be a, a challenge as well. And it took weeks for him I'm to, sure to trust me and even just to take um, food out of my hand. And uh, he was really just very, very suspicious. And with time, he just really got used to me and his whole demeanor and personality changed. And very sadly, um, in, in Guatemala, he was diagnosed with pyroplasmosis. I actually had to send the blood before we went into the United States, um, both their blood, Misha and Tufane's, I had to send to the United States because nowhere actually in Central America are there labs who test for um, pyroplasmosis, which is the tick-borne disease. And uh, sadly, he was diagnosed as positive and he had it both in its worst form. And um, I just remember having contacted and written and, and phoned so many different vets in different parts, literally of the world. I spoke to vets in Ireland and in South Africa and in the United States, and they all felt that given that he had both in the worst form it's Babesia, I think, uh, Equi, and, and then another one. But even the medicines that you could give to them, you have to give to such toxic levels that often they suffer so much just from the medicines. And, and more often than not, uh, a lot of them die from the high doses of the medicine. So I had to make the heart-wrenching decision to, to have him put down. So those things are really ones that you know you don't anticipate when you when you think about a journey like this and of course my my dream would have been to to have the two horses that I start with but they finish with me ultimately but um you know I just had so little control over those things sadly and you know all you could do was just pick up yourself again and and stay positive and continue and that's what I did 
Right. Okay, we're going to take a break right now, and when we come back, I want to hear about your scariest moment on the journey. So, stay tuned. Why the long face? I reckon horsing around will be back in the saddle right after we round up a few words from our sponsor. Molly, here's your dinner. (laughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. We know you're chomping at the bit to hear more horsing around. Well, we're back on the trail. So park yourself over yonder and set a spell. You ain't heard nothing yet. Hi, we're back to Horsing Around with Marianne Dutrois, author of the book Crying with Cockroaches, which details the story of her cross-continental trek on horseback. Marianne, what was the scariest moment you had while you were on the trip? The scariest? (laughs) Well, there were a few scary moments. Uh, I was held up and um, I was chased by my own machete and they were very scary moments but actually now that you're asking that question I'd say the scariest would have been when I woke up one morning at six o'clock and I actually woke up with a bad feeling I just had this moment that something bad happened and I walked out and the horses were gone and they were kept in the yard and um, I write about that in the book but it was just really, really awful, especially when people started to tell me that maybe we should start looking at the local abattoirs because most likely the horses would have been sold not for the use of to, to ride them, but actually um, for their meat. So it, it was just devastating for me. And it's just a feeling that I never, ever want to have again. And um, the, the horses were found initially and they were stolen, but... Just everybody went into action, really. It was a small place, and the local army was <laughs> asked to help, and uh, they had an advertisement on the radio t- with, you know, sound effects of horses' hooves and everything. So the whole town and surroundings and everybody knew what had happened, and about seven, eight hours after they were reported missing, um, we did find them. But I'd say that was probably the, the scariest um moment on the journey. I mean, often, yes, I had to go in the dark with the horses and it's just me and nothing else. And, you know, you might see a light flickering in the distance and you think somebody's watching you or sleeping alone in a tent at night. And, you know, often in the kind of isolated parts, we would go for hours and you just wouldn't see a soul and you wouldn't find a village or a house where you can stop and ask if you can pitch the tent. And you just have to stop on the side of the road and just hope for the best. And four o'clock in the morning, you hear voices, men's voices. And, uh, you know, they were all scary moments. But um, I always said that if I was going to do this journey and being afraid 
uh, I might as well not do it because it really takes away from from your experiences and I think it's it's almost like a bit of like a negative energy if people kind of see that you and feel that you're fearful and often you draw bad experiences to you but at the same time I knew I had to be careful and and keep my eyes wide open yeah that's incredible I mean a woman alone and you know in some of these countries that it, uh, with just two horses you know the horses as you know, horses will, uh, they'll run. They're not like a dog who's going to stay there and defend you. They'll take off. <laughs> That's <laughs> very true. It's not like stay <laughs> and they stay. <laughs> right, right. They're, they're, I'm out of here, you know. What was your most wonderful moment on the trip? Well, you know, every day was just rich with so many incredible moments. I mean, of course, every day was a challenge as well. And For me, just having gone through these places, and I think what made it so amazing for me was the fact that I've never gone through these places. I've never visited these countries. And you just go through this most spectacular scenery. I mean, Bolivia really, really stands out in my mind of just, I just absolutely adore the silence and the isolation and just absolute tranquility and Often I would just think to myself, whenever will I have that in my life again? Because life is just so hectic. And when will you ever just have such peace again? I do remember one um, incident, though, and you're asking about, you know, a special moment. And it was in Argentina. And I had just left the city of Tucumán. And just the day before, there was some publicity in the local paper. So everybody kind of knew about the girl and the horse. And it's a kind of a big city. And as I was making my exodus out of the city, and I had about 50 kilometers, which is about about 35, 38 miles to do that day, which is a lot. It's like really all day riding. Um, People kept on stopping me and wanting to chat, and somebody brought his son to have a picture taken, and then he came back again because he wants to be in the picture now, and he brought somebody else to take the picture. And it was just constant, constant. And I finally reached the outskirts of Cordoba. And I had been like on the road now already two, three hours, and I could still see the city behind me. So I've made no progress. And I was trotting along, and I heard the voice of somebody yelling my name. And I could just see across to my right this young girl. And she couldn't have been older than about, I'd say, seven or eight. And she was running and roaring my name. And I just thought, I'll be damned now if I stop. I'm not going to stop again because it just will never end. So I kept going and she kept going. And I just didn't have the heart to continue to ignore her. And finally, she caught up with us and she was completely out of breath. And um, she just stood in front of the horses and she gave me a card. And it said, God bless you. Welcome to Argentina. And um, she just had the loveliest face, and she asked me to write my name on her hand, because obviously she wanted to go back to her friends and her family and say, well, this is the girl that was yesterday in the paper, and she wrote her name. And uh, for some reason, that girl just really, her face and everything and her whole demeanor just really stayed with me. And throughout the journey, I think the one thing that really stood out for me would have been children, and their response to seeing me for the first time and you could see how it affected them and the big smiles and just this kind of total acceptance not having any agenda for wanting to talk to you but just real curiosity and wanting to be part of what you're doing just for a very short while so that really stood out for me throughout the journey. What would you say that you learned ultimately from this voyage? I think I learned 
a couple of things. I think a few things were reinforced for me and a few things I learned. I think that the, the, the biggest thing I learned was probably patience because you have to have patience when you go at such a slow speed and, you know, there's just no rushing things. You just can't do it. And then you're in a country where there is this kind of manana or in a continent where everybody's like, yeah, manana, we'll do it. And you just really, really have to go with the pace of everybody around you. So I definitely had to learn patience. And I think what was reinforced for me, but really I knew this before I started, and it's just really the, the goodness of humankind um, so many people were so worried about me doing this trip. And, you know, I didn't just foolishly jump into this. Of course, I had my reservations, but I always had in the back of my mind, I knew that people will help me. And I knew, yes, there were going to be struggles and challenges and setbacks and everything else. But ultimately, I would be able to depend on people to, to help me. And yes, I did the journey alone, the riding every day, but almost on a daily basis. I needed people for so many different things, board and food and just, you know, looking after us, giving me a place to stay and the horses and making sure that they were safe. So for me, it was just like so many people, it, it seemed as if so many people were just waiting for an opportunity to actually do good. And then you arrive on their doorstep and they just receive you with open arms as if you're the long lost daughter that they haven't seen in many years and, and you're strangers. And yet they take you into their houses and they trust you. And um, for me, that was just uh, incredibly heartwarming. And with the exception of a few dodgy people on the way, and, you know, you have them everywhere, the majority of people were just really absolutely wonderful. Well, that that's really great. And I want to know why you named your book Crying with Cockroaches. <laughs> Audrey, I tell you, this, it's a short answer. Um, there, there was a lot of both. <laughs> during the journey <laughs> and that's really that's okay. really some sort of in a way the cockroaches were also symbolic you know of the basic and the primitive conditions that I had to go through and live through and uh, it, it's probably symbolic as well of, of you know some people that might not have been as um, honorable as you would have liked them to be I heard the cockroaches are very big down there too Oh, they are, and they fly. I mean, I just, I've never seen a flying cockroach until I, I got to South America, and I just thought, no, they're supposed just to crawl. You know, you don't want them to fly, <laughs> but they do. Crawling's <laughs> bad enough. We don't need them to fly. This is a great book. I really enjoyed reading it, and I think any horse person would just have a wonderful time with this book because the fact that you went into it with so little horse experience and became a incredible horsewoman by the end of the journey um, is really a, a whole adventure in and of itself aside from all the stuff that you went through so that's true well I'm glad you enjoyed the book Audrey well that's all the time we have for today I want to thank you Marianne for being my guest this week and sharing your experience with us and we're going to have a link to Marianne's book on the show notes page of the PetLifeRadio.com website for Horsing Around. So if you'd like to check out the book, you can go there. And if any listeners have any comments or questions about Horsing Around, please email me at Audrey at PetLifeRadio.com. Until next time, happy trails. Stop what you're doing and start horsing around every week on Pet Life Radio. 
Horse expert and award-winning rider Audrey Pavia will be trotting out great tips on feeding, breeding, and more on everything equestrian. So set a spell and say hey to Audrey and get ready for a darn tootin' gallopin' good time every week on Horsin' Around, on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.